You are listening to AVFC Extra, a no-nonsense look at the club we all love. Brought to you by the Claret and Blue podcast. Hello and welcome to AVFC Extra. I'm James Rushton and today I'm delighted to be uh, hosting another episode on a complete Aston Villa schooling of a supposedly elite opponent. Uh, Villa beat Arsenal 3-0 on a weekend and David Hughes is here to join us to talk over uh, Aston Villa's demolition of the Gunners. It's a really good episode. I think if you've listened to our Ross Barkley one, you'll know exactly what to expect. But this one is a really good one for Villa fans. I learned so much about the team and it it made me kind of take off the seatbelt in terms of my uh, caution, caution about the predicting Villa's finish this season. So yeah, it's a wonderful episode and I hope you enjoy it. David, how are you getting on? Uh, I am very good. Thanks, James. How are you? <laughs> uh, yeah, it's, uh, I think you've been a really uh, good luck charm for the not just the podcast, but Aston Villa as a whole ever uh, since we spoke about <laughs> Ross Because uh, I remember messaging you, I was like, we've undersold it here a bit. I think we we didn't do it justice. I think he's uh, turned into Villa's best player. But uh, no, yeah. it was, uh, it's ever since then, it's been on the up. And uh, I mean, you're Everton as well. It's been a, it's been a really good uh, kind of start to the season. <laughs> Yeah, it's turned a little bit sour from an Everton point of view, so which is why um, I'm opting to focus more on enjoying <laughs> Aston Villa at the moment. So I'll, uh, I'll jump back on the Everton bandwagon when they start picking up a few more results. <laughs> See, I was thinking that myself. I thought if we have Joshua David on after, um, I mean, the two people who've analysed um, players and matches with us, if we have those two on after Southampton and Leeds, like I'd have said the same. <laughs> but it's turned sour now. It's t- typical Villa again, but. We had the faith. We beat Arsenal, and I mean, as a watching neutral, I guess you, you've we spoke. You're fairly fond of Villa. I'm calling you neutral is a bit of a lie, I think. Mm. Um, but what what did you make of that match? It was a it was a really intense one for a, from a Villa perspective. All positives. Yeah, yeah, it was it was such a good win, such a good result, such a good performance. Um, I was really impressed, especially because while while I like is just in terms of us. Um, kind of gen- generally talking about results there. Obviously, Villa had a, a, a couple of defeats, didn't they? Against um, it was against Southampton and Leeds. Yeah. Um, and I think it's it's quick. It, it's quite easy to start losing that momentum that's been built up early in the season. But you know they've bounced back emphatically um, against you know a, a tough side in a, a difficult place to go uh, in, in in the form of Arsenal. And you know it was it was a deserved win and. I think for me, probably the thing I enjoyed most on the night was that uh, was the fair goal because obviously Villa have gone to a really difficult place historically. Anyway, the Emirates um, they're up against the side chasing Champions League football. They've gone two 0 up, not long left in the game, and Martinez' decision to you know distribute the ball really quickly, throw it out, and they go and get a fair goal. Uh, there was just ambition there, and I really, really liked it. it was um, as I said, it was probably the, the best moments of the night for me and the best moments of the performance. So I think the, the buzzword Villa fans really don't like in the aftermath is this whole thing, the, the, the perspective that Arsenal put in a bad performance, an awful performance. That's true. But my thinking is that doesn't take anything away from Villa because you come up if you're Villa and you come up against a good start, side usually and they put in a bad performance, you might get the 1-0, 2-0. Mm-hmm. They might steal a draw at the end. 3 nils putting them to the sword regardless. So... That doesn't take anything away from Villa. How bad Arsenal were, does it? No, I think I think Arsenal looked bad because Liverpool, um, Villa played well. You know, yeah. you, you've got to remember that. That, but yeah, Arsenal do have the do have the um, issues at the moment. You know, the they seem to be a lot better defensively, but in terms of going forward, that 
they're not great. Um, I think you can attribute that a lot to Arteta and his tactics. We may come on to that in a little bit, but I thought from a Villa point of view, it was it, it, the game plan worked perfectly. And yeah, I think that's a problem with media, if I'm being honest. I think there's always this perception that if a medium-sized club goes up to one of these bigger top six clubs and get gets a result, it must have been because the other side weren't at the best. But I have to say, I disagree. I thought... I thought Villa were one of the reasons why Arsenal was so poor. I mean, if we actually, I'll have a quick look now. Um, I'd look because I know Arsenal haven't been pulling up trees at, at all this yeah. this season. But if you have a look, they they obviously won at Old Trafford the week before. They had two defeats to, to Leicester and Manchester City, but they were both one nil. You know, mm-hmm. slender defeats. So it's not as if they've been on a horrendous run of form, conceding two or three every week. They haven't. Of course, Villa have gone there. They would have been on a high, especially winning at Old Trafford for the first time in maybe 16 years or something. And Villa have gone there and, and won comfortably 3-0. So, yeah, I have to say, I'm not really buying that narrative and I, I can understand why it's a little bit frustrating from a Aston Villa point of view. Yeah, I think when uh, when you hear that Arsenal put in a bad performance, I think everyone turns to the fact that what, what about Villa? And I think that is a situation most clubs are in um, that aren't in that top six, that big six, when they get that win it's not reflected on them, is it? And very fairly, as you said. But um, going on to this tactics in Arteta, because I saw an interesting line picked up by The Athletic and they're going to... I think the police were coming in for me then. Um, <laughs> it's because you mentioned Athletic, I think. Yeah. yeah um, <laughs> but um, I saw that they um, they said that Arteta was directly... At, at a certain point in the game, the frustration built, Arteta was directing his players, not just through the you know the motivational shouts of, you know, press here, chase the ball, do this, do that. He was directing each passion, I think, at an empty stadium. Uh, emptier than it usually is anyway. Um, Arteta's making the shout so that he, everyone can hear that. And I think that made Villa, I think that was at 2-0 for Villa. That that would have made their job so much easier. Was that something that you think Dean Smith could have taken advantage of? Or even just the players just hearing that? I think, you know, when it gets to that point, you're not fixing anything, are you? Nothing's going to nothing's gonna work. No, exactly. I think definitely for the players, that would have been a positive. Could you start looking at each other uh, and thinking... You know, these don't really know what they're doing here. They haven't got an answer for us. The, the, the coach is trying to coach from the sideline. And I think it, it, it's really difficult to influence things in the midst of a battle when you're the coach. I think one, once once the players out on the pitch, it's on them. Yeah, you can make adjustments at half-time, mm. but you can't really change much uh, midway through the game. And, yeah, you know, I think a lot of this is Arteta's issue at the moment is, he has a he has a clear philosophy. Uh, he has tactics tactics that he wants to deploy, um, but they're very disciplined and rigid. And I think they've helped them defensively, but it does definitely shackle you know creative freedom within that side because they have good attackers in that side. But as I said, you shouldn't be trying to talk through your team mm. on the pitch. It just doesn't work. And there's very I think as again I go back to that point. As a coach, it's really hard to influence things when the game is going on. Um, I thought a really good example of that is if you look at that game between Liverpool and City on Sunday, and Liverpool obviously started the game in a completely different formation, different setup, and the idea behind that I think was to try and catch City cold, and if they could try and get maybe one or two goals early on in the first half, you knowing that first thirty minutes before City had a chance to really adjust and Guardiola had that opportunity to bring the players in at half time and tell them what was going on. Um, so yeah, I think that just 
that just goes back to what we just said, though, doesn't it, James? That mm. he didn't really know how to bypass Aston Villa on Sunday. Um, it's uh, there's an element of frustration coming there, and, and Arteta's ended up trying to micromanage, and it's done nothing for them. I think something that really set the tone as well, going a bit off script here, because I didn't want to mention it. It's, it's that offside goal um, early on. I think John McGinn breaking into the box. I think it was our man Ross Barkley that was uh, getting in the way and causing that obstruction. Um, but I think there was a, a split decision as well with Villa fans. Some said, oh, he's in front of the keeper. It's clearly offside. And then some like me were like, oh, yeah, he is offside. But is he interfering that much? And I think, regardless of the argument, I think it's easy to call as an offside four-minute break. We won't go into VAR here, David. That's for every, <laughs> every other podcast. But yeah. as, a, as a Villa fan, I thought that was the worst-case scenario. We've had the goal disallowed, regardless of whatever you think. That's a blow usually to Villa, but I feel like that's now a lift. That was almost like, right, we can do it. We'll do it again, in my yeah. in my opinion, anyway. Yeah, no, I, I think what you see in there is um, maybe a mentality shift in the team this year compared to seasons gone by. Um, because in, in seasons gone by, it is easy to be deflated by something like that. If you believe you're only get one, going to get one or two chances in a really tough place like the Emirates, and that was one of them that's being ruled offside. You know, this isn't fair, frustrated, and so on. But as I said, that this, this team, you don't see that, I don't think. And it did almost feel like there was an ambition to go out and do it again mm-hmm. and, you know, kind of get that goal that was that was deserved. Um, so, yeah, it's, it, I think that's a testament to maybe the mentality, the, the Villa side that's, that's there at the moment. So let's catch up with that man, Ross Barkley, and I've uh, been trying to uh, bring him up. I think we've already spoken about him twice, but I think his assist as well, the volleyed assist across the box for Villa, I think it was Villa's second goal, the Ollie, Ollie Watkins' first goal. That was just Ross Barkley all over. It was just it was a, a, a lovely bit of power, but also that technique. And I think everything you brought up in our first podcast about him, we, we found out now, and it, it's like you've set that perfect path for his, uh, his Villa career almost. And, you know, I feel like it's everything we expected from off the back of that. And a little bit, a little bit more. Yeah. He, um, he owes me that for, for leaving <laughs> us for Chelsea a few years ago. You know, at, at least proven me right as some sort of redemption. Um, but yeah, you know, this is what I expected. I must say that goal in particular, you know, I was jumping as much uh, around the living room as I think Villa fans were just fancy football. You know, I had, I put Barkley in there early on because I, I knew the kind of output he produced and got Watkins as well, so I loved that one. But yeah, this is this is what he is. You know, he's he's in many ways not necessarily in playing style, but he is a kind of replica of Grealish in terms of just pure, you know, creative and attacking output. Um, yeah, I mean, so far this season. I touched on in a in a piece that I recently put together, but he's um he's averaging five point eight shot creating actions per ninety. Now shot creating action is basically any one of two um you know offensive actions leading up to a shot. So five point eight is a lot. Um but even without set pieces, because we know it takes set pieces, he's averaging roughly three per ninety. And that's the eighth best in the Premier League so far. So you know it, it it it's it's impressive stuff. It, it is you know, and it's it's showing how important he is from not only set pieces but but open play. Um, and obviously, what we're, what we're seeing is that's then taking the burden off Grealish as well. You know, it isn't just all about Grealish. Barkley's contributing. Um, I mentioned in that same piece that last season it was John McGinn who ranked second that Villa behind Grealish for shot creating actions per ninety, and he was on about three point seven four. So if you think. 
the difference between McGinn and Barkley there, I calculated it to maybe roughly 76 shots over the course of a campaign. And if you think how, how that can kind of translate into goals, mm. it, 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 it's no surprise that we're, we're seeing Villa, you know, create so much and score these goals. It's um, it, it just it looks to be such a good piece of business by by Villa bringing them in, and I'm I'm really impressed. It's glad to uh, get your stamp of approval then, because I think in that first podcast we spoke about kind of the pain that you, you feel as well <laughs> as an Evertonian watching him. The, the the move the the career after the move and then this mm. move which almost we we said it was almost like a weird diagonal downward sideward step it was like not what we envisioned but look he's back on top now which uh, I'm really impressed with him yeah he's just in a really good place to play football as well isn't he obviously he's at it might not be one of the top six dream teams but he's obviously he is at a big club he's he's at a, he's surrounded by you know good players. Now, um, he's got a really good mate there in Grealish. It just seems like a really good environment. He knows he's going to play every week. Even if he has a quiet game, he knows he's going to he's going to be there on the pitch next week. So I think that takes some pressure off because at Chelsea, you may be getting 30 minutes to, to show you mm-hmm. can do something um, with no guarantee of starting the next game anyway. And maybe that's not good for his, you know, his psyche is kind of the mental aspects of his game, whereas where he is now, he's he's kind of. It seems like he's he's well thought of. Dean Smith obviously likes him, and um, and as a result, you're seeing his his best his best qualities. Another bigger uh, difference maker then for Villa, Ollie Watkins. Another um, summer signing uh, against Arsenal. He, he showed all his wonder. I think in the two games between Liverpool. And this game, I think people went, he went off a bit off the ball a bit, but I feel like he has been a massive, massive difference maker for Villa. Um, a third of the shots he takes hit the back of the net. And when that shot mm. is actually on target, it's going in 60% of the time. And I think in your piece, you found out something really interesting about Watkins. He's not taking a whole lot of shots, is he? No, he isn't. He's a, I mean, if we, t- you know, of the three players we talked about, Watkins, Barkley, and Grealish. He's surprisingly taking the fewest shots per 90 at the moment. Uh, it's, I think it's around 2.57. Um, but he's so clinical that, you know, some players like that don't need a lot of shots. In that piece, I mentioned Vardy, no, not Vardy, sorry, I mentioned Salah and Kane. Yeah. You know, they're, they're players who seem to take three or four shots per 90 to kind of get the goal returns that they do. They just shoot so much that... You know, the, the, a few of them go in. I'm not saying that they're not accurate finishers. Obviously, mm-hmm. they produce fantastic goals, but their game is often built on outputs. But then you've got players like Vardy um, and who it seems to be Watkins, who don't necessarily need a ton of a ton of chances per game, but they tend to convert the ones they do. Um, I, I had a quick look at Brentford last season. He was averaging 2.3 per 90, so a little bit less. But, you know, over the last two seasons in the championship, it was 36 goals he scored. So it's a good sign, really, because although Villa are creating plenty of shots, it's uh, it's good to know that you've got a kind of player who convert, can convert them when they come. I think another player similar to that is Danny Ings as well. You know, Danny Ings is always a threat and you know, need maybe one or two chances and he'll get on the score sheet. Talk to me a little bit more about that shooting then, because I think in a graph that you've produced, you've got them placed amongst the elite, not just in terms of taking these chances, but creating these chances. Is that down, as we've mentioned, to better support alongside Grealish? Or has Grealish found another level? Because I'm leaning towards the former there. It, I mean, it, it, it'll be, a, I imagine, probably a bit of a 
a multitude of things. Yeah. Uh, I think it definitely helps. And um, we talked about this last time I was on. It really helps that Villa were going to have and now do have more of like a multifaceted attack. You know, it, for me, if I if I think of a typical kind of Villa attack, um, you know, you see Grealish kind of picking the ball up in a transition or someone winning the ball out to Grealish. Grealish, you know, driving forwards, bypassing players, bringing players towards them, creating spaces. I think maybe one or two times last season, well, actually a, a lot last season, there wasn't always players able to expose those spaces that he was producing. But now, if you, you know, you've got Barkley running up alongside him. He can punish you. You've got Watkins as well. So what you're doing is you've, you've got a couple of options for him to pick out. You can either feed the ball into one of them to unleash a shot on goal or... We know he can do it himself. You know he's uh, he's got a fantastic shot and he's a he's a good goal scorer. So um, yeah, I think that that's a lot of it. Really, it just seems to be clicking for the attack now. And I mean, in terms of, I'll just bring the visualization up. It's yeah, they've so the Villa are averaging um, fourteen point eight six shots per ninety and around six shots on target per ninety. I think there's only really. No one, no one can better Villa in terms of shots on target. Uh, I think Liverpool are the only side who are averaging more shots in general. Um, but I think what's important to probably point out as well, James, is that they're not just shooting regularly. The the shots of a, a good quality, you know, in terms of um, expected goals per shot average, they're ranking fifth in the division. So what that means is, you know, the, the shots are more than likely in good locations. Um, with good prospects of leading to goals. On the other side of the pitch then, I guess I, I say the more boring side of the pitch, what's standing <laughs> out for Villa defensively? Because I think this was a, a common thread last season that Villa wanted to be the team attacking-wise. They are now. They did that and they got punished because they were, I guess, somewhat naive. So what is standing out for them defensively? I think, I think the, the the thing I would say is um, obviously it looked really bad, didn't it, for a while? Certainly before lockdown, mm-hmm. you know, it, it was poor. I think Villa were averaging around two goals against per game, which is you know a lot. You're basically asking your attack to score three goals to, to get a win every weekend. It's in this division, it's it's really difficult. I think if you look at Everton, actually now that's a problem they have. They've conceded two goals or more in the last maybe four fixtures. Uh, so it's no surprise that they've they've stopped picking up results. Uh, that was that was why I think Villa struggled. But interestingly, post lockdown, and it it, it is some, sometimes hard to quantify how these changes come in. But it, the numbers just look so much better. You know, from that kind of nine game sample size or nine or ten games, the 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 underlying numbers did really improve. So I think maybe we're seeing some of that. Um, but then, you know, we've got a, a really good goalkeeper come, come in as well in terms of Martinez. I mean, just briefly on the numbers, um, obviously Villa have conceded the joint fewest number of goals this season, which is impressive. Obviously, they have played a game fewer, uh, but still impressive. They, they've conceded the seventh highest number of shots, but they do have the fourth lowest expected goals against per shot average. So... Again, it, it, we talked about it in the attack, but it's it's basically they may concede a decent amount of shots, but the shots aren't really of a of a great quality, which to me says that you know they are doing some decent defensive work. You know, maybe frustrating teams like they did against Arsenal or restricting them to taking shots from 
bad angles or far away from the goal and just things that, you know, have less chance of actually leading to a goal. So if you think, I don't know, maybe you can add some insight on this. Mm. I don't know if maybe it's it's as a consequence of the tactical design with, you know, Smith fairly happy to kind of forego possession, maybe sit a little bit deeper, invite teams on and then, you know, which could involve maybe concede a few more shots. But obviously that works perfectly for them when the ball's turned over and, and those attacking players can exploit in transitions. Yeah, I think, I feel like from what I've seen, Villa are very happy to allow the other team to have a shot now. They've got so much faith in Martinez as a, as a goalkeeper. But I think the flip side of that is a Leeds match where, bar the first goal, Bamford's two finishes, I think he's crowded out by two or three defenders just narrowing down on him to force a shot from the, the hardest possible angle where there's only one way it can go. Mm. Unfortunately, he's buried it twice there, but I think far and wide, the Southampton game being a, a complete outlier due to the, the set pieces given away. Um, I think that's been Villa's story this season. They're very happy to give a chance up or give a shot up as long as they're designing it to be the hardest possible shot to take. Um, so yeah, these shots might be coming in uh, thick and fast, but as you say, from really challenging uh, situations. That's it, yeah. And then obviously they've, they've got le- you know less of a prospect of actually leading to a goal. Um, so you, you'd much. The thing is, you can't expect to keep clean sheets every week. But if you if you kind of restrict an opponents to to really difficult chances, then it's going to have to be something special to to obviously lead to a goal. And if you look at Martinez's numbers, I think over the Premier League, back end Arsenal, Villa so far, he's conceded roughly eighteen goals, but as there's expected goals against, and this is post-shot expected goals as well, which tends to capture keepers' performance. Yeah. It's better is over 23. So you know he's you could you could argue he's just on ability alone. He's he's maybe kept out five goals. Um, obviously, it's not as black and white as that, but it does indicate that he's he's a good goalkeeper over a good sample. And yeah, he was another really good buy. It does feel like Villa have just improved in both boxes, which. At the end of the day, quite often is where games are won and lost, um, which is why we're seeing them play so well. Very positive. I, I couldn't help but smile there. I was like, "You're talking about <laughs> Villa here." I'm like, I didn't expect that at all. But um, another another really positive thing. We, we're going to Grealish now. Um, FB refs data has Grealish placed amongst the league leaders, and I, I mean he's played a, a game fewer than most of them in ball progression, and that's a stat that we, we know it would favour defenders who carry the ball place those long passes because they've just got so much more pitch in front of them. Grealish is up there, so and with a game less than most of these players, so how well does that reflect on him? Because we saw this in, I think, Villa's third goal when he just bursts across the pitch. Martinez as well plays it out to him wonderfully. Mm. He carries the ball across the pitch. He, he, he's, he's making the key passes, but this one across the pitch, holds off um, Bellerin, plays Watkins in, and it, it's a goal, and I feel like he's finding the room to do his thing so much more often. Because back in the day, we might have said, oh yeah, Grealish is capable of doing these things, he does it every so often. Now it seems like every game, he's just making this dribble across the pitch, that's a total game changer, and nothing can be done about it. Yeah, he's um, he's unplayable at times, I think. he's um, Although completely different styles, He's similar to the way to the way sometimes Wolves' um, Traore can kind of just be on it and then there's nothing that the defence can do to stop him. And I think you see that sometimes. As I said, I think for me, Grealish is a little bit more... How can I say this? It's a little bit smoother, he glides. You know, it's a little bit more 
aesthetically pleasing to watch when Grealish does it. But yeah, it, it, it is because you, you touched on defenders. Often they're carrying the ball unopposed. Uh, opponents are letting them have it, you know, letting them bring it forward. No one's letting Grealish have it in their own in the opposition's half. You know, he's chances are he's under a lot of pressure when he's on it, but he's just he's so good at carrying the ball. And it's why, again, you know, I've got the numbers to handle. I know when I was putting that piece together yesterday morning on Villa, I, I did see that he's. I'm pretty sure he's leading the um, fouls received count again. Uh, mm-hmm. You know, he's the most foul player, and that's there's just elements of frustration um, and cleverness in his play as well, but. It is. It just all comes down to the way you can progress the ball. And when you've got someone, especially if, say, if Villa is sitting in a little bit, uh, inviting teams on, it's imperative, really, that once that ball is turned over, you do expose the opposition in the transition and when they're, you know, out of shape. And to do that, it's two ways. You obviously pump the ball forward to a striker or you need someone who can get on the ball and drive with it. And uh, and that's what Grealish does perfectly. It's uh, He's a fantastic player, he really is. Yeah, I think, uh, you know, every time we speak about it now, there's no real way to describe it. And I mean, you turn into a fanboy a bit and you're just like, oh, he's brilliant. Oh, he's excellent. Mm. And people are like, why? And you're just like, oh, he just is. Like, they yeah, that's it, yeah. really, I feel like find it really hard to define. I felt like that way for years and years and years. But once it got touching another kind of Villa wonder kid, Douglas Louise, I know we said he's a bit hard to define. It has been a bit of a, a quote unquote quieter start for him, but I guess that's because Villa aren't fighting the fires they were last season when he had such a massive, ro- massive role. A bit quieter for him now, but I think he's found his level. You know, sometimes in that position, you don't always want, want to see, um, or you don't always need to see headlines being made. You know, it's just important to be, you know, mobile, read danger well, protect, protect the ball well, be a decent asset in possession. And, you know, I think he, he ticks all those boxes. And, yeah, it, 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 sometimes players like him, it, it, they're not always captured in the data. Um, but the thing is, the numbers only tell us so much. You know, they are really helpful. But at, at the end of the day, the watching a game, the eye test, that kind of stuff does reveal a lot more. And you see a lot more because there's less blind spots in it. Um, and when you watch him, he's, you know, he is, he is important to the side. And a lot of the stuff maybe he contributes isn't always necessarily on the ball or in direct duels, you know, it can be positioning, um, it can be kind of chaperoning someone away from away from goal or away from the space. It's it, it, it's it's almost like you do need those unsung heroes, but I think that there's definitely been some good work even this season, despite a team and a little bit quieter than than maybe at the back end of last year. Yeah, I think if uh, people are a bit worried about Douglas Luiz being left out of the plot, it, it's another Brazil call up, and Brazil's Brazil, right? So. He's not being ignored at all. I just think he's found a really nice role for himself where it's not he has to do everything all the time to, for Villa to win. Villa are winning because of what he's doing and he's a part of that wider machine. But I wanted to put you on the spot now after what you just said. Um, I want oh. to get, get your answer. Who is Villa's unsung hero? Is it a cop-out to maybe give some love to, to Mings, Tyrone Mings? Mm. No, I, don't, I just think... Just because... Go on, sorry. One. No, that's a good yeah. one because I think... With Mings, because of his profile, the role he plays and how involved he is with almost everything, anytime there's a slip-up, people are just like, oh, Mings isn't that good, actually, is he? But 
I'm really interested now to see where you go. I just think, I just think he's, you know, he's such a reliable kind of character in that defense, um, and we we've seen the defense improve, and he's been there both when they were struggling and when they have kind of we, we've seen the improvements, um, and I think he really suits that the game that's the employed in terms of you know when you're sitting deep, you kind of need to be a player who can who can deal with aerial threats mm-hmm. coming into the box, who can who can you know be reliable in the tackle but I think he's also fairly and, and I hope people aren't going to start thinking he doesn't know he's talking about but I think he's quite reliable in possession as well and I think he does d- dis- distribute the ball fairly well um, I just think he's a he's a solid defender and in the same way we've just been talking about Louise there I, I think it's quite easy to overlook the importance to the side when you've got Really good players elsewhere producing these kind of moments of magic. Magic, but yeah, I do. I do like him personally. I think he's a he's a good defender. Yeah, I think with, with the point you made, people will naturally respond and get these like vertical slices of the game where he is maybe careless. But I think with Tyron Mings and Douglas Louise, the reason they aren't maybe as hyped as people want them to be or, or whatever is because they're doing that job well and that job is is very unfashionable because it's at the base level of this this team's little attacking pyramid, isn't it? Yeah, that's it. It's you know it it it, it can be quite the good thing is and I think this can be the case sometimes with goalkeepers as well. You put them under the bracket. Sometimes not being in the headlines, not making news, is it means that it's all going fairly well. You know, mm-hmm. you don't really want them to be in there. Um, I mean, don't, you can say, you know, what wasn't he a rock at the back today? You know, he's fantastic, yeah. really reliable. But the chances are, normally, if a defender's making the headlines, it's because they're making all kinds of errors. Um, mm-hmm. You know, costly things. Same with keepers, and you know that, that's not really happening. So yeah, it's just if we're talking about unsung hero, I think he's got to be in the conversation. So realistically, David, have Villa's expectations changed now? Because, I mean, yesterday on the podcast, as a Villa fan, I'm still like a bit nervous about saying top six. But when I saw it in your piece, I was like, seatbelt off now then. If, <laughs> if someone has reviewed this and is saying this outside of the club, I'm all for it. Um, so expectations, I guess, before the season, it was to earn a few extra points per game just to get their level a bit higher than they were, avoid the relegation battle, finish 15th to 12th. But I feel like, You've come out the gates swinging. You've come out the gates full speed ahead. You've won matches you probably didn't expect to get any points from, like just looking at the whole schedule. And yeah, there have been losses against Leeds and Southampton, but by and large, this team has set a new standard. And I feel like, is that something, is it a new normal now for Villa? Is there going to be a, a slip off or have they achieved so well now that they need to readjust these expectations? That That's kind of why I wrote the piece that I did, because... Obviously, and and I'll, if anyone wants to see it, it's on my um, on my Twitter uh, at da hughes underscore. Uh, basically, I got because it wasn't a a reach piece, so it wasn't you know part of my employment. It was part of a newsletter I'm, I'm involved in, and I got up yesterday six a.m. at a coffee and I thought, right, I'm just I know the results have been there, but I want to know if if Villa are actually you know good. Mm. You know, I'd add an underlying number saying that they are because. You'd often see teams are getting results, but the underlying numbers are saying that they're a little bit fortunate. They're not actually putting in the performances, and you're probably going to see them tail off. I thought a really good example of that, if anyone does who's listening and watching, who keeps an eye on the um, championship, was Reading. You know, Reading started really well, uh, really impressive, tons of t- clean sheets, and then I had a quick, uh, I had a quick look, and the I think the had the fewest number of shots in the whole division. 
at the time. And I just knew that wasn't sustainable to keep winning games when you're doing that. And Dan, he fell off a cliff a little bit now. So I thought, you know, is this going to be Villa? And the reality is, it doesn't look like it is. You know, all the underlying numbers are good. Villa look like the team that we're seeing in the results. They're performing well. I thought it was important that they bounce back from a couple of defeats because, you know, make no mistake that the division this year is is crazy. You know, yeah. it's, it, 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 I mean, exciting. I'm, I'm loving it. You know, no anybody can beat anyone. So you are going to pick up defeats, but it's how you bounce back from them. Villa did that, I thought, really well at Arsenal. Numbers are good. So if you put me on the spot, I'd probably say... Villa can achieve a top 10 finish this season, but they should, you know, based on what we've seen so far, have some ambition to go and try and chase a Europa League spot because they're only four, four wins away from the, all the wins they achieved last season, wasn't it? Nine last season, I'm pretty sure, now five now. Yeah, I hope I'm right in saying that. Mm. Um, so they've already got the points on the board, uh, the performances are there, so... You know, why not aim for top 10 and have a little bit of ambition to maybe go a little bit further and pursue some European football? Because if you're going to do it, this will be the season because this season is, is it looks like it's going to be wild and anyone can kind of win anyone and anyone can achieve anything they want, I guess. I hope we're uh, reviewing uh, Villa's Europa League qualifying knockout next year, then, <laughs> uh, in June, July, whenever it's going to be. But yeah, David, yeah. it's been brilliant having you on again. Um, I know you've already mentioned your Twitter, and we'll have it in the description below if you do want to follow David and check out his writing. But I wanted you to, to um, tell us a little bit more about this um, newsletter you're doing. Yeah, so it's something I, I've basically set up with a a friend of mine, Sam Maguire, on Twitter. Annoyingly, he's a Liverpool fan, and there's too many of them in the world. But he's a he's a good writer, um, and we kind of decided that beyond our roles through the day, obviously my role would reach that we do something maybe that can just be about ideas that we want to look at. Um, obviously, yesterday it was Villa. Um, there's other things that we've we've covered in there that you'd be able to see, but. Um, yeah, it's it, it. You know, if people want to want to check that out, you'll be able to find it on my Twitter. You can sign up as well to the mailing list. It is completely free. Um, yeah, so that's what we're working on. Just you know, if people can go and check it out, really appreciate it. Especially the Villa piece because obviously my my audience of Villa fans is fairly small. Although I must say, uh, and me and Josh both spoke about this recently. We've we've both appeared on this show once each, and. Um, the fallout was like so bizarre in a good way. Like everyone was so positive and nice and reaching out to us saying nice things. And I'm just not used to that at all because we've, <laughs> we've been on um, the likes of Newcastle and things. And admittedly in New the Newcastle podcast, we did basically say, um, look, your team isn't that good <laughs> based on the numbers. But um, yeah, we, but as I said, Villa fans, the experience we've had, just fantastic. And, uh, you know, people reaching out, we, we do really appreciate it. I do. But yeah, do check out the Villa piece if, if you want. I think hopefully it makes for good read, reading for Villa fans. And then if you can, obviously join the, um, join the mailing list on the newsletter. Perfect, David. Thank you for coming on. And if you're interested, the piece will be again in the description below, so you can read all all about uh, Villa's kind of schooling of Arsenal there. And uh, David, again, thank you very much for coming on and uh, giving Villa fans so much to chew on. Yeah, thank you very much, mate. Cheers.
Thank you for listening to AVFC Extra, an additional dose of Aston Villa content for you, brought to you by the Claret and Blue podcast team. If you enjoyed the episode, please do get in touch with us, get involved in the comment sections, tweet us at Claret Blue Pod, or leave us a review on iTunes. We really do appreciate it. We'll catch you again very soon with some more content. Until then, up the villa. Bye.